0: Thanks very much, Siobhan, it's a pleasure to be here, to participate in uh, this element of Dublin's celebration of uh, the 350th anniversary of Swift's birth. I had not intended to mention Description of a City Shower, which is, of course, one of Swift's greatest poems, uh, but in honour of the day, I feel I should say, uh, make a reference to the women who gather uh, in the shops, pretend to cheapen goods, but fail to buy as they shelter uh, from the rain. Among the prized holdings in the library of Trinity College Dublin is a brief manuscript entitled Family of Swift. Part genealogical account, part memoir, and written in the third person, the manuscript is valuable not only for what it tells us of Jonathan Swift's family and early life, but also because it's an autograph account in Jonathan Swift's handwriting. Can everybody hear me all right? Is that okay, good? So he begins with the Swift's family's origins in Yorkshire and he progresses through various uh, marriages and inheritances. But the account takes a strange swerve when it reaches the birth of Jonathan Swift, who at the time who was at the time of writing Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. And you can see there on the screen uh, in front of you an image uh, from the manuscript. He was born in Dublin on St. Andrew's Day. And when he was a year old, an event happened to him that seems very unusual. For his nurse stole him on shipboard, unknown to his mother and uncle, and carried him with her to Whitehaven, where he continued for almost three years for when the matter was discovered, his mother sent orders by all means not to hazard a second voyage, till he could be better able to bear it. The nurse was so careful of him that before he returned he had learned to spell, and by the time that he was three years old he could read any chapter in the Bible. So he clearly had a very productive time uh, in, in Whitehaven. Well, even in the context of the 18th century, when children were often wet-nursed or they were fostered and might spend time away from their parents, uh, their mother, um, early on in life, the taking of a child across the Irish Sea without permission of either parent or guardian, and of course, um, Swift's father died before Swift was born, and that accounts for the reference to his uncle uh, in, in the passage. Um, But to do this does indeed seem very unusual. And stranger still is the mother's instruction that abductor and child should stay in Cumbria until young Swift is better able to bear a second voyage. I mean, obviously crossing the Irish Sea in the early 18th century or in the late 17th century actually wasn't a picnic and there were often long delays, um, but even still. Presented as maternal solicitude, this instruction could also be interpreted as just the opposite, maternal indifference. Whatever the reasons for the delayed return to Dublin, Jonathan Swift apparently remained separated from his mother till he was four. You might have noticed um, on the the screen uh, that uh, he he actually crosses off two and then uh, writes uh, three. And strangest of all, The adult Swift who is giving us this account represents the actions of the nurse as relatively comprehensible and her transgression goes uncensored. We're told, well, she had expectations, you know, there was a relative dying in Whitehaven, she had to be there, she was fond of the child, so she took him with her. As told here, an infant snatched away and a mother displaced by a shadowy double, Jonathan Swift's earliest experiences of women would seem to belong more to the realm of fairy or folk tale rather than to a factual memoir. Actually, this suggestive anecdote prefigures many elements that would later recur in Swift's life and his writings as far as the treatment of women is concerned. Ambivalence, distance, separation, rivalry, and journeys back and forward across the Irish Sea. As an infant, Swift was plucked willy-nilly from Ireland to England. On two separate occasions in his adult life, a woman would cross to Ireland and make it her home, primarily because of Swift. Esther Johnson in 1700, and Esther van Homerig in 1714. And later, I'll turn to how these particular women feature in Swift's writing. For the moment, though, there's still something to be said about this nurse uh, who really uh, fascinates me, something that makes her unusual. Swift's writings often represent women as having imperfect control over themselves and over language. As an authoritative, effective, and affectionate teacher of her male charge, whom she inducts into a world of writing, this nameless nurse from Whitehaven is therefore striking. It's possible that decades later, Swift, in Gulliver's travels, paid an oblique tribute to the nameless woman who taught him to read and write, to spell, certainly. In the second of his four voyages, Gulliver arrives in the land of the giants, Brobdignag, and is discovered by a farmer scything in a field. They all look quite um, jolly and and, and friendly uh, in in this particular 18th century um, illustration. Uh, But that is far from being uh, the case, the farmer soon realises that this tiny mannequin can be exploited and he takes to exhibiting Gulliver for money. In this landscape the diminutive Gulliver is vulnerable to even the tiniest of animals, so he has epic battles with wasps and with, uh, with rats. The person Gulliver credits for his preservation in that country is the farmer's daughter, a nine year old girl whom he calls Glumdalclitch, or little nurse. Everything is relative, of course, and the little nurse is actually 40 foot tall. Like the nameless woman who nursed the infant Swift, Glumdalclitch not only displays care and affection towards her charge, so people comment. Um, often on the lack of nurturing women in Swift's writing. So I feel that these images, um, they are rare but they are um, highly, highly significant. Glumdal not only displays care and affection towards her charge, she also acts as a schoolmistress, teaching Gulliver the language and the Brobdignagian alphabet. Gulliver's Travels is not only Swift's most famous work, it's also the most popular of all Irish books. And here I show you, I just love this picture. I think it's perfectly charming with these uh, school children. It's a screenshot from the Irish Times from a few weeks ago, Um, but the picture is actually from 2011, and it shows uh, school children in trim. Of course, Swift had connections uh, to that area of Mead where where he was vicar of of Laracor, brandishing uh, their copies um, of of Gulliver's Travels, which I suspect, sadly, are not their own personal copies which they lovingly keep by their bedsides, but ones uh, that were provided specially for this uh, photo opportunity. But nonetheless, uh, there it is. Uh, As I say, Gulliver's Travels is not only Swift's most famous work, it's also the most popular of all Irish books, partly because, of course, published in 1726, it has a long lead time um, on on later arrivals. The book sees Gulliver, a ship surgeon, undertake four voyages to imaginary lands. First, to Lilliput, where the inhabitants are six inches tall and correspondingly petty. Secondly, to Brogdignag, the land of the giants, uh, where the rulers at least display a certain kind of magnanimity. Um, and uh, far-sightedness. Then among other places, to Laputa, the flying island, and finally, to a land governed by rational horses, the Wynhams, whose tranquil, ordered lives are troubled only by the presence of odious yahoos, the bestial creatures who bear an astonishing physical resemblance to human beings. In general, women do not emerge well from Gulliver's travels, the example of Glumdalclitch notwithstanding. In Brobdignag, the monstrous bodies of women repulse Gulliver. At court, he's greatly offended by the queen's maids of honour, by whom he is used like a creature who had no sort of consequence as they strip to the skin in front of him, revealing bodies he views with horror and disgust. And of course, it should be pointed out here that this is a double-edged piece of satire because we have Gulliver, who's this high, uh, feeling affronted that these women do not respect his manhood um, when they are 40 foot tall. Elsewhere, female lasciviousness and sexual depravity are objects of censure. Having given an account of a woman in Laputa, who abandons her loving husband to perversely take up with a footman who beats her, Gulliver remarks, and I'm quoting, this may perhaps pass with the reader rather for a European or English story than for one of a country so remote, but he may please to consider that the caprices of womankind are not limited by any climate or nation, and that they are much more uniform than can easily be imagined. And one might say in relation to Laputa that, I mean, this is the flying island where the menfolk are completely preoccupied with abstruse abstraction. They're fascinated by geometry, astronomy, um, to the extent that they need flappers to accompany them and wave pea, uh, you know, objects with peas in them to, to waken them up and bring them back to Earth, as it were. The women in Laputa are not fascinated by this. Um, And they uh, want an earthier, more physical existence. So there's a sort of a gender uh, binary uh, going on here in which the women uh, seek to escape the rarefied atmosphere um, of of Laputa. And in fact, in Laputa, it's the one place where Gulliver really doesn't get on with the, uh, or doesn't ingratiate himself with the, with the ruling beings, uh, and he finds himself, as he says somewhat in a disgruntled way, really spending most of his time with women and children, um, because he doesn't have the mathematical interests that uh, his uh, his hosts uh, do. In his final voyage, describing his own country, England, to his Wynnum host, Gulliver criticizes the appetite and consumerism of his countrywomen, and peevishly remarks, This whole globe of earth must be at least three times gone round before one of our better female yahoos could get her breakfast or a cup to put it in. So what Gulliver is referring to there, the sort of Mm. modish uh, female tastes for tea drinking, which is a relatively recently acquired habit, and for Chinese porcelain. And these tastes and appetites drive trade, but they also uh, bring about processes of luxury Uh, which many commentators saw as being injurious uh, to national health. To some extent, Gulliver's horrified observations of and complaints about women are a familiar litany of satiric tropes that can be traced back at least as far as the uh, classical Roman satirists such as Juvenal, uh, who many centuries before were saying similar things about female carnality, licentiousness and frivolity. In others of Swift's writings, some of these complaints receive a highly topical application. In the first of his pamphlets on Irish economic matters, a proposal for the universal use of Irish manufacture published in 1720, Swift inculpates Irish women for their love of personal display and their failure to buy Irish products. And uh, just before we began, uh, Siobhan was mentioning the exhibition there uh, to the side, and there is actually a first edition of uh, this proposal included. So if you haven't already had a look at it, uh, you might want to, to pause and, and, and have a glimpse uh, on, on your way out. So. And in the, in the course of the pamphlet, I mean many, many agents are seen as responsible for the, the sad state of Ireland, poverty, unemployment and so on, uh, but in, women are, are singled out and their appetites, their, their desires. What if the House of Commons would make a resolution against the wearing of any cloth uh, which weren't uh, of, Irish, of Irish manufacture? What if they had extended it so far as utterly to exclude all silks velvets calicoes and the whole lexicon of female fopperies and declared that whoever acted otherwise should be deemed and reputed an enemy to the nation Well speech and language is the mark of a rational being this is something that you know is very much part of Uh, say, Gulliver's Travels, where the yahoos uh, don't speak, but but the horses uh, do. But in the wonderful phrase, lexicon of female fopperies, Swift suggests that Irish women are such superficial creatures that to the nation's great hurt they allow their clothes to do their talking for them. Of course, in thinking about Gulliver's Travels, uh, one must remember that men don't come out of that work particularly well either. The title of this short series of lunchtime lectures, as Siobhan mentioned at the beginning, uh, includes a quotation from Swift's The Life and Character of Dr. Swift, which is one of several poems in which Swift has, you know, he imagines uh, various uh, people discussing his legacy uh, and and, and what he's done uh, in terms of of poetry, in terms of politics, and, and so on. Um, and in, one of the, in this poem, the defender articulates a view plain his writings are designed to please and to reform mankind. As a satirist, the emphasis in Swift's work tends more towards an effort to reform than to please his readers, whether those readers are male or female. The accusation that Swift is a misogynist for which some of the passages from Gulliver's Travels just cited might provide some of the milder evidence, needs to be considered in relation to the charge of misanthropy. Swift's understanding of how satire, designed to expose human folly and to reform mankind, might appear a species of misanthropy, is explained in a letter he wrote to his friend and fellow writer, Alexander Pope. Um, this is a very famous uh, quotation and is probably familiar uh, to some of you. It's quite, quite long, but it's also quite dense uh, and, and intricate, uh, and it's worth, it's worth uh, pausing over. I have ever hated all nations, professions, and communities, and all my love is towards individuals. For instance, I hate the tribe of lawyers but I love counsellors such a one, judge such a one. So with physicians, I will not speak of my own trade, that is, the clergy. Soldiers, English, Scotch, French, and the rest. But principally, I hate and detest that animal called man, though I heartily love John, Peter, Thomas, and so forth. This is the system upon which I have governed myself for many years, but do not tell and so I shall go on till I have done with them. And then he goes on to describe the writing of Gulliver's Travels, which he's working on um, as he's writing uh, this letter uh, to Pope. And he explains how uh, Gulliver's Travels is a treatise which is designed to show that human beings are not rational animals, but only beings capable of reason. And then he ends, Upon this great foundation of misanthropy, The whole building of my travels is erected, and I never will have peace of mind till all honest men are of my opinion. Principally, I hate and detest that animal called man. It's a strong statement, and it's a rather shocking one if one considers that at the time of writing, Swift is an ordained priest. It must be qualified, though, by what comes after. I heartily love John, Peter, Thomas, and so forth and all my love is towards individuals." What Swift is describing here is his hatred for abstractions and generalities, and his regard for the individual. The great foundation of his misanthropy, as Swift describes it to Pope, is that human beings should not pride themselves on this notion uh, that they are rational animals, but simply that they are potentially rational. As a satirist, Swift castigated generalities and groups, nations, professions, communities, man understood as an abstraction and, we might add, woman. One of the uh, critics who's written best, I think, on this whole vexed and complicated uh, issue of Swift and women and the myriad and conflicting ways in which his works represent women uh, is Louise Barnett. in uh, her book, uh, Swift and the Company of Women, she talks about how, in general, uh, Swift or Swift invades against women in general, uh, but many of his works also uh, celebrate, honour, um, are dedicated to, uh, praise uh, individual uh, women, and this is sort of the second part of my lecture. I'd like to talk about uh, some of those works. Jonathan Swift never married, but he had many women friends across his life. His two closest relationships with Esther Johnson and Esther van Homerig have con- generated considerable speculation and are also the most significant in terms of Swift's writing, as each woman is she's an important addressee of Swift's letters uh, and is also a subject in Swift's poetry. Swift's most long-standing friendship was with Hester Johnson. Stella, as Swift was to name her, was a young girl when she first met Swift in the 1690s in England. They met in the home of Sir William Temple at Moore Park in Essex, where Hester's mother was a housekeeper and Swift was Sir William's secretary. Swift took an interest in Stella's education, directing what books she should read, and in his own words, instructing her in principles of honour and virtue. This image of Swift as an instructor of women is something that comes across very frequently in his writings. Later, as a young woman, Hester Johnson moved to Dublin, where Swift was also living. Um, the, the sort of purported reason for the move was that Dublin, unlike now, is a cheap place to live. It was cheaper uh, to live in Dublin uh, than elsewhere. And uh, Esther Johnson, she had some money that Temple had left her, but she wasn't by any means a wealthy woman, and her money would go further uh, in a place uh, such as Dublin. Despite the fact that Stella lived with a female companion, Rebecca Dingley, and maintained her own household. The world looked askance at her living arrangements until, according to Swift, she saw all censure by her excellent conduct. From Swift's own lifetime to the present day, there has been speculation on whether Hester Johnson and Jonathan Swift were privately married. And there are many and varied theories as to whether the marriage took place. Uh, why it didn't take place, alternatively if it did take place, why it was kept secret, and so on. Between 1710 and 1713, Swift was in London, he was acting as an emissary for the Irish clergy, essentially attempting uh, to get a more beneficial uh, tax arrangement uh, for them, and during this period he wrote daily to Stella and Dingley in Dublin. Letters containing political gossip and news, but also abounding in affection, and some written in an intimate little language, particular to the writer and the receivers, sort of a lot of ciphers and codes and and, and pet, pet words and so on. One topic that Swift essentially omitted from his letters home to Dublin was his growing relationship with Esther van Holmerig. Vanessa, the young woman he met in London in 1711, and with whom he maintained a somewhat turbulent relationship until close to her death in 1723. Vanessa is the subject and recipient of Swift's longest poem, *Cadenus and Vanessa, which was published after her death, uh, against Swift's wishes. This poem joins both Swift and Esther van homerick in the title Vanessa was was Swift's name uh, for Esther and Cadenus is an anagram of the Latin form of Dean. But it's an elaborate, awkward, and inconclusive attempt to maintain distance between the pair. So the poem begins with Venus uh, being asked to adjudicate between, it's a sort of a court of love, as it were, between men and women. Each uh, of the sexes blames the other for the decline in modern love. Marriage isn't what it used to be. So she hears evidence, it's inconclusive, she gets a bit fed up with the whole thing. On the foot of this, she determines to, perf- to create a perfect creature whom men will find irresistible, and then she tricks the goddess of wisdom into bestowing on this infant, Vanessa, whom the goddess mistakes for a boy, seeds long unknown to womankind, for manly bosoms chiefly fit, knowledge, taste, and wit. Again, this is a trope we sometimes see in those uh, in treatments of women that Swift regards as exceptional, that they're granted um, uh, manly uh, qualities. It's not that they're viewed as men, but that attributes associated in that culture with men are associated with these women. And I think that that's uh, a slightly uh, different thing. As a paragon, Vanessa actually pleases nobody. Far from being irresistible, uh, nobody has much time for her. The men find her dull and the women find her indifference to fashion incomprehensible. Then Cadenas appears and although he's 44 and half blind with reading, Vanessa, owing to the manipulations of Cupid, falls in love with him through a book. I think the representation of Cadenus in this poem is rather like what Americans call a humble brag, where you sort of itemize faults that you don't actually think are faults at all, um, such as your learning, your wit, you're half blind. You know. Flattered but also alarmed, Cadenus attempts to deflect Vanessa's love into friendship. But friendship in its greatest height, a constant rational delight, on virtue's basis fixed to last when love's allurements long are past, which gently warms but cannot burn, he gladly offers in return. So Vanessa desires a physical, erotic relationship, but what Cadenus is prepared to offer is the rational delight of friendship, uh, a, a, a passion which is based in the mind, It's something of the, of the spirit. So in a sense, what he's offering is a relationship that can essentially ignore the fact that Vanessa is a woman altogether. She, however, will have none of it, and at the end of the poem, or towards the end of the poem, the tables are reversed. The nymph will have her turn to be the tutor and the pupil he, though she already can discern her scholar is not apt to learn or wants capacity to reach the science she designs to teach, wherein his genius was below the skill of every common bow, who though he cannot spell is wise enough to read a lady's eyes and will each accidental glance interpret for a kind advance. But what success Vanessa met is to the world a secret yet, whether the nymph to please her her swain talks in a high romantic strain or whether he at last descends to love with less seraphic ends or to to compound the business whether they temper love and books together shall never to mankind be told, nor dares the conscious muse unfold. So the poem is left undecided. It's kind of hanging hanging there uh, inconclusively. Unlike Cadena and Vanessa, a long poem that seems to be made up of several different poems, those poems written for Esther Johnson are short, playful, and controlled. From 1717 onwards, Swift marked the occasion of Stella's birthday every year with a poem. Stella, this day is thirty-four, we shan't dispute a year or more. However, Stella, be not troubled, although thy size and years are doubled. Since first I saw thee at sixteen, the brightest virgin on the green, so little is thy form declined, made up so largely in thy mind. Oh, would it please the gods to split thy beauty, size, and years, and wit? No age could furnish out a pair of nymphs so graceful, wise, and fair, with half the luster of your eyes, with half your wit, your years, your size. And then, before it grew too late, how should I beg of gentle fate that either nymph might have her swain to split my worship to in twain? So this is an extraordinarily playful uh, poem in which Swift abandons the sort of cant of uh, praising a woman for her beauty, uh, instead performing this uh, metamorphosis in which Stella is split in two and he is also split in two, so it all works works, uh, perfectly well. In the final birthday poem, when both Swift and Stella know that she is dying, The playful metamorphoses of the body are left behind. The poet urges, Stella, from not the gravest of divines except for once some serious lines before going on to insist that unlike the empty shadows that pass before a mirror, the effects of virtue are enduring. So in this very solemn context of this poem, this uh, really heartfelt and quite moving attempt to talk about the ways in which personality, um, character, uh, endure uh, beyond the fragile form of the human body. Family of Swift, the memoir with which this lecture began, is sometimes called an autobiographical fragment because it describes Swift's life only to the age of 30. When Esther Johnson died in February 1728, Jonathan Swift attempted to give an account of her entire life and character. This day being Sunday, January the 28th, 1728, about eight o'clock at night, a servant brought me a note with an account of the death of the truest, most virtuous and valuable friend that I or perhaps any other person ever was blessed with. She expired about six in the evening of this day, and as soon as I was left alone which is about 11 at night, I resolve for my own satisfaction to say something of her life and character. So on the night of Stella's death, he writes for an hour. On the second night, 29th of January, he continues. He writes a paragraph and then he says, my head aches and I can write no more. January the 30th, Tuesday, is the night of the funeral. Swift resumes his tribute even as the funeral is taking place in the church. This is the night of the funeral, which my sickness will not suffer me to attend. It is now nine at night, and I am removed into another apartment, that I may not see the light in the church, which is just over against the window of my bedchamber. On the death of Mrs. Johnson is the resolute attempt by a grieving man to memorialise the qualities and attributes that made Esther Johnson such a valuable friend. We hear of her judgement, her charity, her modesty, and somewhat more dramatically, her personal courage. Uh, At one point uh, when Stella was about 24, some intruders tried to break into the house where she was living Uh, and she took up a pistol and shot one of them dead, an episode which clearly impressed Swift, as indeed, why would it not, Um, and which he describes in some detail. Yet what On the Death of Mrs. Johnson conveys most vividly is not Stella's character, but the struggles of the writer to do justice to that character. The light in the church as the funeral takes place is the last physical sign of Stella's presence. Only by turning away from that light and removing to another room can Swift place the woman he loved in writing.